Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today's guest is someone I've been eager to sit down with for a long time. Terry Reel is a sought-after family therapist, best-selling author, and founder of the Relational Life Institute. His new book is out today from Goop Press. It's called Us, Getting Past You and Me to Build a More Loving Relationship. It's an incredibly insightful and helpful roadmap for all of us seeking true intimacy. Terry does such a brilliant job breaking down how individualism and patriarchy has damaged our ability to be in healthy and loving relationships. If you're familiar with Terry's work, you know that he's not afraid to get involved and take sides. He often draws from his own marriage to coach couples who are wondering whether their relationship is worth saving. Today, Terry and I talk about how society reinforces individualism, how it plays out in our intimate relationships, and why it's easy to revert to our inner child when we're triggered. There were so many profound light bulb moments for me in our conversation. Terry has a beautiful way of shifting relationship paradigms and turning everything you think you know about love and intimacy on its head. So let's get to my chat with Terry Real. It's interesting because, you know, your intimate relationship, I feel like it's such a benchmark for like where you're going right or wrong as a person and how much you've developed and how accountable you've been. And, you know, it's, to me, it's like almost the most direct way to figure out what's wrong with you is to be in a long-term intimate relationship. Anything there is to come up will come up, count on it. Well, exactly. So I guess like, I would love to start with just asking you a little bit about your background and how you came to this work. You know, I like to say that I started off as a family therapist at about the age four. People talk about the drama of the gifted child. The gift of the gifted child who comes from a dysfunctional family is managing up. Uh, the gift of the gifted child, uh, which is true of all people in a one-down position, is that you become an exquisite reader of those dysregulated giants that you depend upon. Dysregulated giants? That's maybe the best thing I've ever heard huh. over that. <laughs> but it's true. Like, what am I going to do with these people before they kill me? So that's how I started. I became a therapist, literally, to gather the skills I needed to have the conversation that I needed to have with my father in order to not become him. Wow. And I did have that conversation, and I did free myself from his legacy. What was the general content of that, if, if you don't mind sharing? No, I don't mind. I covered in in my very first book, I don't want to talk about it, which is to some degree autobiographical. My father was a depressed, 
grandiose, violent man, loving, very loving, warm, and violent. And I remember in my late 20s that I already gathered the skill of being a therapist. I was able to get through to him. Mm -hmm. And he told me a story, which he never told me. And his story was that during the Depression, his father tried to kill him. He tried to kill him and his young brother and himself. He locked them in a garage and turned on the car. And my father beat his way out of that car at 11. And he was never a living human being after that moment. Oh, my gosh. So I broke the legacy. That's the great work of my life and my wife's life. You know, I tell people, I am the son of an angry, depressed man. He was the son of an angry, depressed man. I have two boys, and they do not say that. Right. That is perhaps the greatest work of my life. Absolutely. That transgenerational healing that you facilitated. So how did couples work start to come into that? Because that sounds very you know, individualistic in a way, being able to assess that and, and break through that. After I published, I don't want to talk about it. And there are an estimated 6 million depressed men in America. So the book was a bestseller. And I was getting calls in Topeka and LA and here and there, who locally does what you do. And after several years, the light went on. And I said, look, if you're crazy enough, and you have the resources come to Boston. And what evolved was a two-day, I called it relationship intervention. I would spend two full days with a couple, just the three of us. At the end of our two days, we were back on track of getting a divorce. And this is the last stop. And it worked really well. I was getting great success. And the other thing I noticed was I was breaking like every rule I'd ever learned about how to do couples therapy. <laughs> I took sides. I wasn't neutral. I often sided with the woman, saying that what she was asking for was legit. I dealt with not just shame, but also grandiosity. I wasn't neutral like a, I self-disclosed. I'm more like a 12-step sponsor than a traditional therapist. I'm in this with you. I broke all the rules. I began to teach couples therapy. And my first work was with men. And what I realized was that the cure for men is relationship. You know, if you read powerful influencers, the Stone Center, Carol Gilligan, people who I cut my teeth with, the wound for girls is disempowerment, the loss of voice. The wound for boys is disconnection. We teach them to cut off from their hearts and from other people. So I began to feel that, you know, particularly in heterosexual couples, women across America were dragging in these guys in order for me to teach them how to be relational because they were insufferable to live with. And I thought the best way to do that is using their relationship, not, not some hothouse deal with me, but really with the people they were with. And so I began to do more and more relational work. Relationship is just it. We're born to be connected. It's what makes our bodies work well. It's what we're designed for. And it's the only thing that's going to make us happy. For, I don't know, 30 years now, I've been writing against patriarchy and what patriarchy does to us. And I began to focus in on what I call the toxic culture of individualism. Yeah, I wanted to ask you all about that because it's a really interesting way to look at the culture. And I think specifically patriarchy and capitalism are at that intersection, right? Can you articulate a little bit about your theory of individualism and how does it play out in relationships? Yeah. You know, I'm really proud of the book in that it really spans. I start with neurobiology. The myth of a standing individual is simply in modern science of the brain dispute. We don't, we don't self-regulate. That's a myth. We co-regulate with other human beings all day long. I, I write in the book, if you want to see a freestanding individual, look at somebody in solitary confinement. You go insane. Our nervous systems need 
Dan Siegel, the neurobiologist, speaks about social interaction as an essential nutrient for your brain. It's not a luxury item. So we're not individuals. That's just nonsense. We are individuals in context. We, We breathe in relationship with each other. And then I began to look at what thinking like an individual does to our relationships. And, you know, Gwyneth, my feet are rooted in trauma work. Mm. And so here's how I say it. Our autonomic nervous system scans our bodies four times a second. Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? If the answer is yes, I'm safe. We stay centered in the prefrontal cortex, the most mature part of our brain, what I call the wise adult part of us. If the answer is no, I'm in danger, we're flooded and we move into automatic, you know, stimulants in the bloodstream, armpits sweating, heart beating, fight, flight, or fix or freeze. And those automatic responses. So I said, when I'm sitting with a couple, the first question I ask is not, what are the stressors? A good couple can handle stress. And it's not even what's the dance, although that's really important. What's the choreography? The more she pursues, the more he distances. The more he distances, the more she pursues. Okay. The most important question is this. Which part of you am I speaking to? Mm. Am I speaking to the here and now, present-based adult part of you that can actually see me and make good choices? Or am I speaking to an immature part of you that's flooded on automatic and will do your knee-jerk response? And I speak about the wise adult part, prefrontal cortex, the wounded child part, which trauma work has made famous, very young on the receiving end of it, usually just wants to crawl in someone's lap and cry, very overwhelmed. But between these two, is what I call the adaptive child part of us. Mm. It's the you that you cobbled together in the absence of good parenting. It's how you adapted to what was going on around you. And it's a kid's version of what an adult is supposed to look like. And it tends to be black and white, rigid, perfectionistic, harsh, impulsive, It lacks the nuance and the creativity and the flexibility of the mature part of us. When we are flooded, when we read this moment as I'm in danger, most of us have about two seconds worth of tolerance for the wound, and then we click into the adaptation. Mm -hmm. Screw me, screw you, or I'm gonna shut down, or some knee-jerk response that's about you versus me, Two individuals fighting, one of us wins, one of us loses, and we we lose the capacity to remember the whole, to remember that we're in this relationship together, and it becomes an adversarial contest. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They have created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It sounds like you just you're describing every single, you know, married couple. <laughs> I'm like, oh, right. my me included. <laughs> so how I mean, I suppose I understand why, you know, I understand why we do that. But there's this, you know, as you say, this young part, it feels it has just hijacked me completely. First of all, I want you to be easier on yourself, Gwyneth. 
Good luck. No, 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 no. That harshness is part of that young part of you. Right. It's part of the adaptive child. Yeah. And we all get triggered and we all get hijacked. And there are moments when we act it out. I have a saying in relationships, everybody gets to go crazy. Listen, the first thing I want to say is don't meet that part of you with harshness. Okay. I teach my students, always be respectful of the exquisite intelligence of the adaptive child. Mm. You did back then exactly what you needed to do to preserve yourself. You know, we we can or can't get into the details, but that shutting down that that little girl learned to do was exactly what she needed to do to stay safe and sane and whole. I guarantee it. Right? Yeah, I mean, now I'm crying, but yes. (laughs) Well, that's good. That means we're telling the truth. (laughs) Yes, that's true. I love that. What did you say? The what exquisite of the adaptive child? Exquisite intelligence of the adaptive child. That little girl shut down for a reason. Have compassion for her. But you don't want her running the ship. No. You have compassion for her, but you also have to have a little chat with her. Yeah. So I would have you do two things. I'd have you work with an RLT therapist for a few sessions. And do some inner child work with that little girl. Great. Are you busy after this? (laughs) I'll do it. I'll do it with you. Um, I do it all the time. And, you know, one of the things I say is that when an inner child comes up, you don't want to be harsh or control them or get rid of them. Put them on your lap. Put your arms around them. Listen to what they have to say. Meet them with love. And take their sticky hands off the steering wheel. You're in the back seat. I'm running the show. And it's a process. Yeah. And honestly, you do it in a sort of really deep, heartfelt way within a therapist's office or a Zoom. But you do it on your own, day in and day out, in your practice. When Belinda and I fight, my wife, I take little Terry. I literally do this. I take little Terry. I have a composite, he's about eight. I know him very well. And I put him behind me. I'm a fighter, Belinda's a fighter. We both grew up in tough families. And I say to this little guy behind me, I'll make you a deal. I will deal with the blast of anger coming at us, like Superman, you know, I'll take the hit and you're protected back there, my big body. You're fine. That's my part of the deal. Here's your part of the deal. Don't you deal with Belinda. You let me deal with her because you make a mess of it. And sometimes it even works, you know? Right. <laughs> but it's about it's about taking a breath. I'm a big fan of breaks. Yeah. Take a break. Take a walk around the block. Smash some water in your face. Literally have a little talk with that shut down little girl. Mm-hmm. Tell her she's okay. Tell her you'll take care of her. And get re-centered. That's what I call remembering love, remembering that your husband is someone you love and that it's in your interest to come out from your shell and engage with them. Mm -hmm. Get centered and then go back into the fray. Don't give yourself permission to disappear for days at a time. Right. Yeah, that seems extremely unproductive for a relationship. You talk a little bit about our culture or society rewarding the culture of individualism. So, which is more the, I guess the adaptive child. Yeah. Tell tell me more about how we're reinforced badly. Boy, are we ever, I go into it a little in the books. There's a chapter on the history of individualism, which is not with us forever. You know, in the middle ages, people weren't being individuals. They'd be, they'd be burned at the stake for that. It really is the concoction of a bunch of white, rich, wealthy, powerful men in the Enlightenment era. I mean, we owe a lot to it. We owe the French and American revolutions to it. Mm-hmm. But it's also people lived in small communities and there was a sense of neighborliness that you took care of each other. Mm-hmm. It, it, there was more than just me, 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 mine. And I think this really broken down in our culture. 
So we live in an individualistic, patriarchal, narcissistic, addictive, capitalist culture that absolutely reinforces me, 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 mine, and that has very little support for us and we. Lip service, maybe, but no, no real support of it. You know, as a couples therapist, the bane of my existence is individual therapists. I wouldn't put up with that if I was you. And great. Well, we can do better. You know, I give, I'm proud to say I give tools in the book. And here's a big one. Under patriarchy, you can either be connected or you can be powerful, but you can't be both at the same time. There's connection affiliation, accommodation, quote-unquote feminine. There's power, dominance, control, competence, quote-unquote masculine. But when you move into power, you move into dominance as power over, not power with, and you break the connection. So one of the things I teach readers in the book and my clients is what I call speaking up with love, standing up for yourself with love. Mm -hmm. Nobody does this in our culture. And I really think it's crazy for me as a man to say this, but I believe it's the next step, particularly for feminism and for women, to stand, be fully voiced, stand up for yourself and cherish the person you're speaking with in the same breath. It's brand new. Mm -hmm. So, for example, instead of saying, Gwyneth, don't talk to me like that, I would say, listen, honey, I want to hear what you have to say. Could you tone it down so I could listen to you? Two different ways of saying the same thing, but oh my God. Instead of saying, sex, sex, I need more sex here. You say, uh, we deserve to have a good sex life. What, what do we need to do to restart this? And when you remember the us, when you think like a team, instead of two adversarial individuals, mm -hmm. everything changes. But you get to tell your truth and be forceful and cherish that relationship both at the same time. And that moves beyond the culture that we're all living in. That's mm -hmm. new territory. Yeah, very much so. Very good to keep in mind the, the we, and because it, it, it's, as you say, like is, it does tend to become individualism. I can see how it goes straight into adversarial because all of a sudden you forget that you're aligned and that you ultimately always want the same outcome. You mentioned sex, for example. What are the most common themes? Is that a very common one? Because do things play out in, in the sexual realm between couples? I'm yeah, sex goes. Sex goes when the we goes. I talk about fierce intimacy, the capacity to really grab each other by the collar and take each other on and tell the truth to each other about what's really going on. We don't do that. We back off. We say we're accepting, but we're really settling and the first casualty uh, when we stop telling the truth to each other is sex is passion mm. we lose our generosity we lose pleasure and but the reason why we back off of being so radically honest with each other is we don't know how to do it in this culture yeah. when, when you try and do it it doesn't go very well your partner gets defensive or react so i teach people how to speak in ways that has a snowball chance in hell of being listened to. And I teach people how to put themselves aside and listen and respond with generosity. Our culture doesn't teach us how to do these things. We have to learn them. So is it contextual or do you say to people, you know, start a hard conversation using this language or setting an intention? First of all, set the intention. You're exactly right. And speak the intention. Mm -hmm. Listen, I want to talk to you so that I can feel closer to you. I'm not feeling close. Start mm -hmm. with that. I love you. I want us to be close to each other. Right. Which uh, is I, different than I love you, but. I love you, but. Yeah. I right. love you, but you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> do, men, do men disconnect as part of an injury? And is that cultural? Like, in, is that specific to this? culture that you speak of, this patriarchal individualist culture where boys are taught, don't feel that, don't, don't cry, don't, don't express any vulnerability. Like, is that why they behave in a more disconnected way? Is that part of a larger injury, cultural? Yeah. Injury? 
Yeah. The way we, quote, turn boys into men, and it's still true to this day in our culture, is by dislocation, by distance, by distancing themselves from their own feelings, from their vulnerabilities, and from others. And one of the things I say is that the cost of disconnection in boyhood is a disconnected man in adulthood. Yeah. It just is what it is. So the healing for men is reconnecting them. So first reconnecting inward. It's true. I do this all day long. I'll have one of these guys, you know, how are you feeling? Okay. What's going on? Nothing. My back hurts. You know, my wife's a bitch. Okay, good. <laughs> Anything more? Not really. All right, good. And I'll give the guy a piece of paper, a physical piece of paper. And I'll say, I want you to write a column. For those of you listening, grab a paper. Joy, pain, anger, fear, shame, guilt, love. This is from my mentor, Pia Melody. Joy, pain, anger, fear, shame, guilt, love. Those are primary feelings, like primary colors. There are a million feelings, but these are... Now, I say, Bill, look at this list. Tell me what you're feeling as you're sitting there right now. I do this over and over again. Bill goes, uh, well, I'm a little nervous. Uh, okay, good. Where's that in your body? Let's start with the body. My chest. What, what's the sensation? Butterfly. Okay, if those butterflies in your chest could speak, what would they be saying? I hope I don't fuck this up. Okay, good. What else do you feel? I guess I'm feeling some nervousness that, that my wife is going to not be happy with how things are going. Great. Where's that? And you, okay, what else do you feel? And by the time I'm done with structure and guidance, honest to God, the son of a gun has come up with four, five, six feelings. Mm-hmm. And then I get to say the punchline, Bill. You're a passionate man. You're not shut down. You're you're awash in feelings. Your feelings never left you. You left them. They've been percolating all this time. All you have to do is turn the satellite dish in and they're right there. And these guys learn how to start talking about their feelings. That is direct reconnecting what was disconnected in boyhood by patriarchy. So how do we as wives, and sorry to be like, you know, heteronormative, but just for the okay. of this conversation, like how do we as wives help our husbands connect into that? How do we, instead of pushing them in the opposite direction? I would say a loving, forceful invitation. <laughs> Tell your husband that it's important to you. Break it down. Do that, do that exercise with them. Say that you need them to share with you what they are feeling. And they have to do some work either between the two of you or with someone like me to begin to learn to identify that. But be insistent in a loving way. You know, when I was writing my first book, it took me five years to write. I was teaching myself how to write a book. And for five years, that was all there was. And by about year four, Belinda confronted me and said, can I just tell you something? Yeah, you're a monomaniac. (laughs) She said, all it is, is your work and your book and your work and your book and maybe the kids. And I'm bored to death with you. I need you to be more stimulating. Read more newspapers. You know, go on Goop. Uh, give me something to talk about besides. <laughs> and at first, I'm wrong. she was right. Mm. And I framed it as part of my responsibility as a husband to come to the table with the more stimulation than what I was giving her. That's a good thing to do in a relationship. That's not a bad thing. We regulate each other all the time. So say to your partner, I need more from you. I need feeling words. I need you to talk about your emotions and mine. Mm. If you can't do it on your own, let's get some help together and learn how to do it together. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. 
Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless high quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Will you talk to me a little bit about couples helping regulate each other? I'm just thinking about there are certain people that really, in my life, for example, that I felt my nervous system was completely overwhelmed by them. And I guess in some cases, that's why some people shouldn't be together. Right. And I know you do help people get to that decision as well, which I do want to double click on in a minute, but assuming you are with a partner that's willing to do the work and to help regulate the nervous system, how important is that process of kind of co or that dialectic of co-regulation? How much of it is unconscious? How much of it are we asking for? And what does it look like in a healthy marriage? There are some uh, therapies right now that really put partners in charge of each other. And that I don't like. I grew up through 12-step and boundaries. And people are responsible for their own internal states. I don't want to put one partner in charge of another person's internal state. Having said that, you may be able to help. And you can have a conversation with your partner when they're not triggered about what would help them when they are triggered. They can tell you, you know, in my marriage, two things help a lot. One is we take breaks when one or the other is absolutely out of their minds. It, uh, I'll see you in 20 minutes. Another is that we'll lie down and hold each other. Wow. It's a lot harder to be in an indignant rage when... You're holding somebody in your, for somebody else, it may be a different trigger, although touching each other is often helpful. Mm -hmm. Here's what I say. When your partner is in his or her adaptive child, you try a couple, three times to help get them centered. Oh, baby. I call it, oh, oh, honey, I am sorry. I didn't mean that. And if they're stuck in their adaptive child and they are having none of it, they're not listening, take a break. You're done. Yeah. Don't keep batting your head against the wall. A lot of couples go nuts because they keep trying and trying. Take a break and let them have it. Mm -hmm. Don't go down into shame. This isn't your problem. Mm -hmm. And don't go up into judgment, goddamn someone. You know, have humility. You're liable to be stuck in your adaptive child 10 minutes from now. So there's nothing to be high and mighty about. And what you have to do in that moment, I talk about a lot in the book. You have to experience what I call micro disappointment. Mm. That Thursday at three o'clock, you want to be close. Your partner's behind the wall. You're done. It's not the Thursday that you had in mind, but tough shit. Just learn Mm. to live with it. So you tolerate it and you don't escalate around it. And how much of understanding and tolerating those disappointments lead to a better marriage? Because I think, you know, we sometimes can go into something with unrealistic expectations about what the other person's supposed to provide and what it's every time, every time falling in love means you're going to do it for me. Falling in love means that my unfinished business is finally going to get finished and you're going to give me what I didn't get. Being and staying in love is crossing through the territory where you realize not only is that person not going to do it for me, but I like to say they're exquisitely designed to stick the burning spear in our eyeball. They are going to injure us in exactly the ways we thought they never would. And we are going to feel so betrayed 
this is not a bad relationship. It's it's intimacy. That's what it really is about. You had people who weren't going to throw you into the soup and they didn't blip on your screen. This guy gets you precisely because he will throw you back into the old injuries. I call that the mysticism of marriage. We all marry our unfinished business. Yeah. Question is, if you can give up, which is a tall order, trying to get that son of a gun to be who you need him to be, and instead focus on your side of the drama, and you do something different on your side of the drama, then your partner might respond with something different. And then the drama might have a different ending. And that's what healing looks like. Mm -hmm. We think it's when we get them to. But the reality is, is when we can rise to the occasion, that's something healing can happen between the two of us. So can you just go back a little bit and talk about, so the, the reason that we choose. So when you feel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, nothing personal here, of course, but go ahead. <laughs> no, nothing personal. But it was interesting, too, because I was thinking as you were saying that, you know, I've been married twice and my first marriage, it was almost like I was dealing with a template and an injury that was from earlier in life. And then with my my second marriage, you know, I'm I'm dealing with it's either later or it's the actual original, original one, which is a fear of intimacy and, and real vulnerability and that I'm so much more comfortable guarded, but I don't want to be right. I do feel like I've made great strides. And again, like I have a husband who is such an amazing, willing partner in this mm -hmm. and wanting to have those discussions, et cetera. But so when we're falling madly in love with someone, it's because on some level, their stuff is resonating with our old injuries. You know, here's what I say. And first of all, I just want to tip my hat to you for being so open and vulnerable right now. If you were 100% died in the world avoidant, you wouldn't be on a podcast talking about your avoidance. Okay, good. That's a good sign. <laughs> That's a very good sign. You know, intimacy is really hard. God, it is. I wrote, Intimacy itself is a trigger. Wow. Intimacy itself is a trauma trigger. Yes, it is. That's yes, you're so right. Yeah. I've never heard that before. Love hurts and it hurts in its absence and it hurts in its presence. And I, I wrote this love is like a giant magnet that pulls up out of our body like iron filings, all of the spaces of being unloved. Wow. that we've suffered through in our life. Mm. And at any given moment, we have the choice in this moment right here to protect ourselves or to open ourselves up to love. And you know what? I have no judgment about mm -hmm. protection. Go ahead. And it's costly. Mm -hmm. So we all do our best. But I will say to somebody, Right now, in this moment, you can protect yourself or you can open up to love. What, what do you want to do? What do you want to do right now? And the, what struck me as you were saying that quote was that, you know, that is the way to really have somebody complete you, if you will, right? Instead of expecting externally, you're going to come in and fit into my puzzle piece. It's like, no, I'm going to lay everything on the line for you. I'm going to risk, risk the vulnerability, the pain the closeness, and only then could you actually be kind of in a feedback loop with somebody where you can really get those deep needs met. That's right. To the degree to which you can, and with compassion for the protective parts of you that have had enough and need to go make a sandwich or yell yeah. at the corner or whatever. One of the first, because I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional family, and my parents meant to love me, but they were pretty screwed up. Mm. The first time I felt real love was my therapist when I was in my 20s. I saw a traditional analyst three times a week for five years, and he just loved me. Loved, 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 loved me. And I said to him once, your love is like a fire, and I'm just willing myself to stay open 
and hold my hand in the fire for 60 seconds, 90 seconds, 120 seconds. And that's how it is. And the more trauma you have, the more courage it takes to hold yourself in that fire. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I really would love to understand this taking sides thing that you do. (laughs) You literally take someone's side. Is there a specific example or a story that you can share that will elucidate what that means and why you do it? It's so iconoclastic and punk rock for a a couple service to take sides. I know. I know. You know, if you quote unquote lose your neutrality, uh, you have to go talk to your supervisor about your mother for a while. I mean, it's really the sacred law. Don't be excited. <laughs> well, I had, after my book on men, I had thousands of women dragging their grandiose, anti-relational, shut down, whatever, selfish husbands in to see me. They'd been seen by three, four, six therapists. No one was willing to take them on. And one of the contributions of of relational life therapy is we deal not just with shame, but also with grandiosity, not just the one down, but the one up. Mm -hmm. And there are not all, but many uh, relationships, there's a power imbalance. And you have somebody in the enabling position and you have somebody in a pretty irresponsible or abusive position. Mm -hmm. And I take on the grandiose person. There's skill to it. If you're a therapist, come and do our training. Don't just try and do this on your own. You have to empower the enabler to stand up to the uh, grandiose person. Use that as leverage. Mm. You have to get through to the grandiose person. And there's an art to that. But I will take sides. What she is saying about you is right. You're a jerk. And if you keep being a jerk, Here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to damage your kids. You're going to pass on the legacy that you suffered through. And your wife is going to leave. Mm -hmm. So, like, I don't know. I can be nice to you. I can save your marriage. What's more important to you? And what is the typical response to that? If they know that they're on the ropes and they feel like I can save them, they'll, they'll go for it. Men are straightforward. You know, men are not stupid. Men know what's going on. What I do is I find my way around the adaptive child part of the person. And I make a connection with the wise adult in them. I will say over and over again in the first session, Bill, you know what? You're a decent man. I have been with indecent men, which is true. They're called sociopaths. And man, they're cold, but you're warm. You take in what I say. I feel connected to you. You're a decent guy. You know what's so sad, Bill, who's been gambling or philandering or drinking? for? I am dealing with a decent man who has behaved indecently for 20 years. You let me rescue the real you from this crap. Come on, let's go. Who says no to that? That's brilliant. I, I wouldn't say no to that. Gosh. No, and they don't. No, no, because there's something like an archetypal parent in that, you know, like I see the real you, I love you, and I'm not going to take your shit. And so if you feel safe and challenged, the outcome I can imagine is pretty good. 
Yeah. One of my old mentors used to say that true intimacy is the conjunction of truth and love. And I think too many therapists are all about love, 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 and they don't tell the truth. And then there are other programs like domestic violence programs that knock over the head with the truth, but they don't love you. And understanding trauma is a real doorway into having compassion for what happened to you as a kid. The phrase I use over and over again is, oh, so you were set up to. So you were set up to be the asshole that you are now. And I call that attitude, oh, you poor perpetrator. <laughs> oh, oh, you poor jerk. I'm so sorry for you. Right. Well, you're acknowledging the the child, right? The adaptive child part, the hurt child. I mean, I think most of us are born with a capacity to become a wise adult, right? But we get really hurt along the way. And and so we get we get stuck and we act from these places that aren't necessarily going to you know, facilitate generational healing, et cetera. It's like, we don't have the tools. That's why your work is so brilliant and important. If someone's willing to have this level of accountability to read the book, for example, and, and, and apply it to themselves and think like, wow, what, what can I be doing? Like, how can I change the trajectory of my life through my marriage? It's, it's incredibly powerful. It is. I say that the work that you do on yourself is, brings peace to your ancestors and spares the children that follow you. Can I, can I tell you a story? Yes, please. This is the story that I've been telling lately about this whole recovery process. I call it relational mindfulness. The good news is you can cultivate the skill of moving from the adaptive child into the wise adult in the moment. You can learn to do that and build that muscle. So here's a story, true story. So it's one of the first stories in the book. Guy comes to me on the brink of divorce. He is a chronic liar, lies about everything. He's one of these guys I say to him, the sky's blue. He says, well, act more. You know, he won't give me nothing, this guy. He's got a black belt in evasion. So I always think relationally. Show me the thumbprint. I'll tell you about the thumb. Show me the adaptation. Who was he adapting to? So I ask a relational question, which if you're not thinking like that, sounds brilliant. I said to him, who tried to control you growing up? Bingo, his father, military man, how he ate, how he sat, how he drank, you know, his friends, his clothes, everything. I say to him, how did you cope with this controlling father? And he looks at me and smiles. I love that smile. That's resistance. He looks at me and smiles and he goes, I lied. But I have a saying, adaptive then, maladaptive now. Mm -hmm. He's not that little boy. His wife is not his father. It's time for some new tricks. Mm -hmm. This is absolutely true story. They come, they come to me two weeks later and they're, they're cured. It's all done. I say, okay, what's the tale? His wife sent him off to the grocery store with, say, 12 things. He came back characteristically with 11. Wife says, where's the pumpernickel? He says to me, every muscle and nerve in my body was screaming to say they were out of it. And in this moment, I took a breath. I looked my wife in the eye and I said, I forgot. And she burst into tears. And she said, I've been waiting for this moment for 25 years. Oh. That's, so beautiful. that's what we're after. Oh. Can I ask you one quick question? Is, is why is the, a controlling parent? Why is the outcome of that a lying child? Because I mean, I go into this in detail, but there are two ways that the adaptive child is formed. Half of it is we react to what's coming at us and resist it. So the more intrusive the parent, the bigger the wall. Okay. The, the, show me the thumb, I'll tell you about the thumbprint. So he had a controlling parent. So he resisted that parent by evading the parent. Mm -hmm. Brilliant boy, terrible man, but brilliant boy. Right. The other half is that we take in what was uh, given to us and we model it. So you could be avoidant, my dear, either because you had an intrusive and meshing parent 
that exploited you or used you or was boundaryless in some way, and you defended yourself against that by going behind a wall, or you modeled your walls behind a in a family where everybody had walls, and then then the, the, we have a good explanation. <laughs> Why that adaptive child part of you is the way they are. And we do different kinds of work for each of those. For the part of you that model distant because what's all this squishy emotion about anyway, we have to sell you on the idea of vulnerability because it's not normal. And in families like that, it's vaguely contemptuous. So for families where everybody operates behind walls, that's normal. And you have to sell them on the idea of intimacy. For someone who had intrusive or meshing transactions with a parent, you have to teach them how to protect themselves. When you've been used by a parent, exploited, you grow up being love avoidant because relationships are about servicing others. And it's hard to believe that anybody cares about you and your needs. So you go without needs and you, you take care of yourself and you stay safe and pointed. Oh, Terry, thank you so much. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so lucky that I get to talk to you. Thank you. Oh my gosh, look, the feeling is mutual. And not only are you doing beautiful work on yourself, which is heroic and admirable, but you're doing work for the whole culture. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Terry Real. For more from Terry, pick up a copy of his new book, Us, Getting Past You and Me to Build a More Loving Relationship. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.